welfare states and markets, the migrant policy makers in comparative perspective, and reflection on social rights and anti-discrimination law. Uh, I think it's a compromise between what I wanted to do and what you wanted to hear me talk about. <laughs> so when you talk about the EU and anti-discrimination law, well, that's fine. But we have to actually understand how we got there. And, uh, uh, and some of that, I think, also the interesting research questions that are both historical and comparative is if you want to understand that what I call the migrant policy nexus, that is the relationship between not only migrant policy, you know, between all sorts of policies on migration and migrants' choices and experiences on the one hand, uh, and when I say all sorts of policies, that means, of course, uh, the least important is probably immigration policy except for status, of course, and uh, examples of that, but uh, labor market policy, uh, welfare state policies, uh, 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 foreign relations policies, and, and others, uh, that's, that's quite a range. And what between welfare states and markets, well, in some sense, I'm also, we're, I think, also struggling with uh, Changes in uh, in uh, in the welfare state and the privatization also of of care, for instance, is another issue that we worked uh, on here at Compass. Um, but it's really these. Uh, uh, I think these two issues have been neglected for a long time in the migration literature. That is, the political economy of migration is fairly recent field when you think about it. I mean, you had the old generation, I'm thinking of uh, when birds are here to stay, you know, the pure generation, but you didn't, you didn't need to an entire, you know, they have that many followers in some sense, uh, people writing in that vein. Um, and, uh, well, welfare state and migration, I was, I think, a chapter in one of the first volumes in 2000, edited by Mikhail Gomez, who passed away last year, and Andrew Geddes was very much alive and well. And, on sabbatical in Florence this year. Uh, and we wrote that volume for welfare state people who thought were scholars and who thought that of course migrants are going to destroy their welfare state. So they were scholars but they were welfare chauvinists already back in the late 1990s. Good social democrats like Google Stein and others really believed that, you know, the Scandinavian welfare states would not be well uh, with migration, so it was very funny that they sort of paid attention, they came to us as migration scholars, trying to, and they wanted to know whether in fact, you know, what was really that nexus between migration and welfare state. You know, I want to talk a little bit about that first part of the agenda, which is trying to understand the nexus between the history of state building, social rights, and migration to get to how now I think the, the principal research agenda is migration and welfare state and labor market. Welfare plus well, plus a labor market nexus in a comparative and interdisciplinary perspective. And then I promise I will talk about the EU. And the EU, why? Because it's a very good lab, it's a lab, it's a kind of experiment, you know, it's the, um, sometimes <laughs> right now it's a lab where all the <laughs> it's probably some chemical reaction or something. The lab is blowing and there's lots of smoke and stuff. But it's still an interesting laboratory for I think what we're doing 
Um, and I'll look at two things uh, in the time that I have. First, uh, what happens about, just very briefly, EU movers on the welfare state, people use EU movements on welfare states, and with particular attention to enlargement citizens, as I call them, those who became new citizens in 204 and 207. But mostly 204, 207 was not as welcoming as 207, and who were in the welfare state sector as workers. Uh, and I will finish on the EU as a laboratory for policy making, more as a, an experiment of what can be done. And I've called this social rights and human rights, that is looking at what's happened in terms of anti-discrimination law uh, and jurisprudence. And they are not gonna just look at the EU, DCJ jurisprudence, but also at the European Court of Human Rights, which is actually much more open to granting rights to non-citizens than the EU courts. That's like a big agenda, and I thought we're never going to get to, to, to one of these. But um, now, why do I want to start really backwards? I really want to start with this, the history, the, the link between migration, state building, um, and welfare rights, uh, social rights. I wrote about it. <laughs> it's something I know about. Uh, I wrote about it a long time ago in a very historical institutions perspective when I was a grad student uh, and my thesis was about explaining the rights granted to foreigners in France, Germany, the Netherlands um, and trying to find, find, you know, and therefore looking at all the historical literature on civil political and social rights to use the very English, not to say British, division um, uh, of rights according to T.H. Marshall. And at the time, there was really a dominant view among historians that um, there were two, two really important things, but that, in fact, you could not understand state building without looking at migration and race, which are two distinct things, of course. But then, in some sense, and that's the, the, the main points that were made, in particular by a French scholar, actually called Gérard Moignet, a famous historian, who really wrote, you know, one of his books is called La Tyrannie du National, the nationalist, tyrannical national, who really trying to show that migration had been forgotten topic, but trying to show how, if you look also at uh, originally at social rights, they're not in any way national. It's more like workers, you know, doing insurance schemes and but then uh, over time, uh, as uh, during the 19th, late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, there's a distinction between citizens and non-citizens when it comes to welfare rights. Uh, I was working on a later period when, in fact, this no longer was the case, but there was a really this idea uh, uh, that was very dominant among historians. This has large, is now being largely contested, actually, by historians and uh, actually other social scientists. One of the main, uh, I would say, the opposite view of, of Moignet is another French historian, of course, in France, as we know, as, I don't know if you know, but academic colleagues always can argue, and the closest they are, the more they, they can argue. They probably work a hundred meters from one another, but they completely disagree on fundamental things. and, and uh, so Pierre-Henri Rosenthal is actually a transnational historian, so he's more linked to people that you would know, like Leo Lucasen or 
working on migration history, but uh, or to an entire field which is emerging, which is the transnational history of the of European integration, which basically says, wait a minute, let's go back to the archives and realize that from the first migrants in the 19th century, there were state-to-state -state agreements on the conditions of work, on the welfare, exactly, on the welfare situation of foreign workers. So when you know Poland and France were discussing back in the 19th century, they did not ignore at all both labor market conditions or work conditions and of course welfare rights. So this is a real, this is why I say it's a very contested uh, issue at the, at the moment. What we really thought that migrants were a sort of solution to have a conservative state building. And, and in the French case, there's probably some evidence of that, but this is increasingly contested. What's no longer contested is that it's more the racial and colonial uh, importance, how race and, and colonialism were, um, I would say, facilitating factors in the development of welfare states in France, the UK, uh, and the United States, in the sense that this is uh, the book my American colleague, uh, Lieberman, um, uh, dividing the color line, who really looked at the US, the UK, and France, and showing how, in a way, in the US, race is within the nation state, while in the UK and France, it's in the colonies. So there's a sort of, so T.H. Marshall, I guess, lived in an empire, and can talk about solidarity and community building that everybody else, you know, everybody who's not uh, of his color and, and in England is not receiving the same welfare rights or education or uh, for that matter. So I think that's where the historians are standing, that in some sense the, the, the real issue is, is how for a long time we actually uh, dealt, you know, we, we were Scandinavians in a way, all the way Scandinavians think of themselves, being uh, a non-migrant society because we had, we, had, we had colonies in some sense that had, uh, were, uh, you know, or, or even when there were migrants already in the metropolis, which was the case in the, to some extent, uh, and especially in France, actually, in the 19th century, they didn't have the same kind of access to, to rice. Um, I just want to mention that because I think we always have, we often build from, I think, uh, preconceived ideas that are that we think are historical truths, you know, from 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 from, uh, from this era. But anyway, there's a, there's a raging debate going on, and it's not exactly clear anymore exactly what is the role of migration in the welfare state building. Uh, even I, I would say during the state building era, 19th sorry, uh, 20th century. The period I'm looking at now is very contemporary, and uh, so I'm jumping now ahead. Uh, to say, well, okay, well, what's what's happening now? We know that after 1917, three, four earlier in England, which is a special case uh, in that sense, as a different time timeline, uh, there was a development which is quite counterintuitive, which is that uh, we didn't want for labor migrants anymore, uh, uh, but we got migrants and their families. Uh, we wanted to expel them, we didn't manage to do that quite so. And in the end, they, the status between non-citizens and citizens in terms of social rights is 
almost the same. The real developments you see the starting in the 80s and 90s is the legal versus illegal or irregular, the, the, how you say the politically correct terms in England, but anyway, the, the political that divides legal versus illegal in terms of access to welfare rights. And that's not just in Europe, it's also the case in North America. So there's this counterintuitive counter development that you don't want them, and in the end, they end up staying, and in fact, having access uh, to the same kind of welfare benefits, uh, education rights as, as others, until you create another divide, which is legal, illegal versus illegal. Uh, but this is now even entrenched, relatively entrenched in the law. So that's what I worked on actually in my, uh, during my PhD days, because I wanted to understand why is it that it's the rights that until the most costs that are, you know, we're supposed to have closed welfare states or else it doesn't work. Uh, how come uh, this was the case? Uh, and mainly the answer was an institutional venue, uh, it, it had to do with the policy venues or the institutional locations where the decision were taken, uh, was taken, courts mainly, and uh, social bureaucracies. Because actually, a lot of these welfare benefits didn't have to go to constitutional reform, which is not the case for voting rights, for instance, where you need, if you want to grant voting rights to non-citizens, you have to go to, uh, you have to have bipartisan support and large majorities and constitutional majorities. So in the 70s and 80s, you see actually, uh, this is the time when we discuss denizenship, this notion that is actually you know, more or less, more protection uh, of the rights of foreigners. We still talk about foreigners and citizens, now we only talk about EU versus non-EU, extra-communitari and the others, but, um, but this was still in some sense not, I think, in the 80s and 90s, not really, it's only in the 90s and it really takes um, importance in, uh, I think, in both jurisprudence and political discourse. Uh, so you, ha you have this evolution in some sense until, as I said, we still have to understand now what is the consequences of having pushed back the divide to not third country national versus EU citizen, but between in irregular precarious status. And I would say not even illegal versus legal, but temporary actually versus permanent status is probably what really makes a difference in terms of access to social benefits. Uh, so that's the main question we have to deal with. Uh, and we have to do sort of mea, nostra culpa, not just a mea culpa, but I have to say the field of migration studies have been quite slow getting there, getting to, we're all worried about this. I think we all think it's a research question. Uh, but there's been a lot of reproduction for a long time of this idea that, you know, my, you know politicians tell us that there are migrants coming, therefore we have migration policy. We all know as researchers that this is just talk for the media. But when have we started actually doing work that says, no, no, we have to look exactly at what are the actually poor factors, as we say now, sounds kind of passe as language, but you know, what are the differences in very, the devil in the detail, not in welfare state regimes a la 
goes that you know like the big three worlds of capitalism, but in the detail, what is you know what for instance exactly how much money do you get if you have an old mother with Alzheimer and you need someone to care for her? So not you know not the big kind of are you uh, uh, you know social democratic continent Bismarckian uh, or liberal welfare state, but more really looking in the detail how that might affect decisions of employers, decisions of uh, policy makers, and decisions of migrants to a lesser extent, but, but to some extent uh, as well. I could hear many always say policy doesn't matter, and it's probably right for most of the time, but you know, there might be some effects of, of policy that isn't. That's why it's a nexus. I mean, we want to know whether actually migrants are, are affected by these welfare state arrangements and policy changes. Um, same thing for labor market access. There's huge differences in the amount of illegal residents non, uh, in Europe from one country to another. And if you don't understand access to labor market, uh, you know, if you don't understand the difference between Germany and the UK, then you're kind of stuck to understand why there are so few irregular migrants in Germany or, or in the Netherlands for that matter. Um, and, uh, and, and in the UK. So I think we were a bit late in sort of picking up uh, the political economy agenda, the welfare state agenda, and migration. Um, the way I'm trying to do it now is uh, um, so working with other scholars who actually come from this field. So it's not all of them are migration scholars, some are gender scholars, some are political economy scholars, some are know everything about the welfare state, so it's a very more women. That's the only thing that's fun because we are interested in the politics of domestic work. Now there are men who are gardening, but it doesn't seem to be somehow what you know what scholars out there are thinking about. So when they think care work or domestic work, they think housekeeping, migrant women from X country. They don't think about. Uh, if you go to the states. You probably think ma male work because you see all the gardeners in the streets in California. But in Europe, I think we still have a very gendered way of thinking about this. And um, what we want to do is, and what we started doing in these various countries I mentioned, so um, the US and Canada, hopefully Japan, because Margarita is in there, and she um, works on Japan as well. Uh, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, Germany, Austria, and the, U uh, and the UK, and I hope I France, Sweden, sorry, uh, is to look at uh, not the uh, workers themselves, but that's been done, including by people here uh, uh, in Oxford and Compass. I think there's a lot of work on, on domestic workers and there's, you know, it's at the top of the agenda of the ILO, there's now an international convention. But looking more at the politics of it and the policy making that affects that uh, domestic work and the amount of migrants that will be involved and their status, whether they will be in institutions or at home, whether they will be taking care of children or old people, whether they will be irregular or not, whether it will be regular work or legal work, uh, and, and and what drives that. And we're focusing on at home, or actually on people working at home um, uh, to, a large, uh, to a large extent. Um, and working, looking at the employers and the incentives that the employers are getting and their attitudes toward these workers. 
as well as the market actors and these uh, service, you know, the firms that were developed uh, because of fiscal incentive or, or other types of laws that facilitated uh, the hiring of uh, workers at home. And what's interesting in the project is every country for the time being is extremely different. Uh, so we really have a, well, we'll have a comparative problem soon because we, we kind of think, okay, there are different welfare states, there are different, uh, there are different migration districts, but if the results on top of that are different, then we're, we have a real methodological problem. But we're still finding interesting things, I think, you know, in the sense of counting things that one, I would say, that one would not expect. Uh, the Dutch case, to give an example, um, in the Dutch case, domestic work, uh, as uh, there was no legislation, basically, um, to control whether it was formal or informal. In France, we're obsessed about that. Uh, we've always been obsessed about that. Uh, um, and we actually have fiscal incentives uh, to, so that when I pay my house, my babysitter or my house worker, I get all my, half of my, basically every single social contribution I, I give is paid back on my income tax return. So it's as if I paid her no social contribution, but the state pays back. So it's the, the state is actually subsidizing my hiring a babysitter or, um, you know, housework, a uh, housework worker. So it is a real, and one of the reasons was to make irregular work regular, to sort of say, and to make it easy also to hire, to create more employment in the service sector, and there were other reasons, but that was one of them. In the Dutch case, they said they didn't care about the workers at all. They said, we make a law that will make informal work formal, meaning a law that says you do not have to pay social contributions, do not have to, but we will not, basically, you know, if you have a housekeeper, that's fine. You pay, basically, legalizing informal, sort of, um, I think there's an expression in English, but it's in French, just, you know, interpersonal kind of, I hire you informally, it's now legal in the Netherlands. Not what you expect from a highly regulated uh, place like the Netherlands. So every country has chosen uh, a different, uh, um, I would say policy arrangement or policy mix when it comes to uh, to this uh, to this issue. Sometimes the migration issue is obviously the one that we know most about, like in the entire case, having a special sort of exception for foreign workers um, that working as care workers or as domestic workers. Sometimes it's just about care work, sometimes it's you know, more extensive. Uh, but it's not always the case. But we're, we're trying to figure out, in some sense, uh, how the debate came about. Because a lot of issues come up. Is it about actually looking at employment? Is it about, yes, we're all aging societies, and some have more kids than others, but we all have old people, and not all old people can go to institutional homes. But is that the only part of the story? As in the French case, there was also mobilization against regular work. An aspect of the travail, people are, we now are very few, but still the, on the left was in power, they thought that it was important to fight this kind of, uh, this kind of work. 
uh, and then the right committee took the power and they said, no, we want to keep the same fiscal incentives as the left, but for very different reasons. We want choice. So we don't want this, uh, our, you know, our voters don't want to go to public daycare. We want to, if they want to have a private nanny, we'll, we'll subsidize that. So it's, you know, the same exact reason. It's been very nice. I have them at home, so I should have bought them, but they, they're, it's like a check. You just have to fill it in, and one of the parties send to the social security system, and they calculate everything for you. So it's, you know, it's very easy, uh, no paperwork kind of thing. Um, but the politics, looking at the politics as well, you see that there are very, very different uh, um, reasons why there has been, um, um, it's an encouragement. Uh, of uh, migrants as migrant workers as a solution for aging populations, and there's you know in some cases there's been there's been more efforts put into alternatives to train domestic workers, and that we also have to to understand. Uh, and there are also differences in the amount of uh, market versus pri private, really private relationships. Uh, across these uh, across these cases, so it's just the beginning of the project. Uh, but I hope it will be interesting to some of you because it's very comparative. It's really UK is one of the cases, but it's uh, uh, I think we're almost inductively some of the puzzles will come out from this, uh, the comparative differences we have in outcomes and in the the way the public policy problem was framed or ignored or not talked about uh, uh, in, uh, in these various countries. Um, I said it's a comparative agenda. It's also, of course, an interdisciplinary research agenda, and I'll get to that. As I said before, we're focusing more on the politics. And I think that's been missing from this discussion on uh, um, migrants as welfare, as carers, and um, need to, so a little bit of political science can't hurt preaching for my chapel here in my neck of the woods. Um, but as I'll get to in a minute, we need to know about the law a lot. We need to know about, you know, there's a lot of different things. And first, but also work more, and then there's imbalance, as I said, between employers and employees. We need more, we need to know more about these employers. So this year, actually, in France, we're doing group, um, I don't know if it's fashionable here, focus group research. It's a marketing thing, but we're doing it in social science as well. Um, so we're going to do actually focus groups in France with employers uh, as well as employees um, to also get some of the the reason whether it's indeed these incentives that make a difference, the schemes that are made by you know government policies, uh, or also some of the things that you hear in other interviews, which is. Um, not new at all, but a lot of prejudice about, you know, uh, uh, sometimes prejudice about various nationalities and how they're more caring, or, you know, this, this kind of uh, discourse. Who, who knows what can happen in focus groups? People can talk about a number, uh, a number of things, but, uh, but at least trying out to see what they're, um, and also how the, the power relationship between employer and employee is also something that probably will come out from these focus groups. 
is the extent to which they think they are in a very warfare or not. Um, the more Alzheimer's patients, the more older women, um, the more people who are not who are borderline, not yet institutionalized, but you know, uh, the more we will need care workers for two reasons: one, to take care of them, and two, because it's mostly women who take care of their mothers when they get Alzheimer, meaning that they themselves are not at home and therefore need a house. So it's sort of like a chain of care. And I'm not talking about the transnational care chain. I'm not even you know, talking about the Romanian lady with children in Romania. No. It's just, um, you know, your daughter, your mother gets sick, you take care of her with some help, maybe from some, you know, some, some migrant worker, but you yourself, therefore, are no longer um, doing some of the domestic tasks that, um, that you used to do. So this, this large evidence about my, I don't know, anyway, the welfare state, if you try to read that, you know, it's the, the, the need will be, need be increasing either for care work or for just, you know, doing what uh, those who are caring are the mothers anymore. Especially actually not in the cities, but also in rural areas for that matter. Um, so that's, I think, uh, one way of getting at uh, this nexus, looking at domestic work well, we know there are a lot of women, we know there are a lot of migrants, and we know that policies, a number of policies are affecting uh, um, these numbers, but how and why and how it works out in different countries, I think is an interesting question. So now I promise to talk about the EU, and I will. Um, I said the EU is a laboratory for policy effects, and I go back to this question uh, about the welfare state and migration, in the two senses I use it. Um, in the first part, when I talk, you know, what are, what about the social rights of migrants, and then what about migrants as welfare state? Uh, I would say workers in some sense, uh, which is the way. And um, we have two interesting examples. The first one, of course, are uh, what Adrian Favell calls EU movers or free the free movers of this book, Your Start in Your Cities, and uh, that also are present in the book that he co-edited with Eto Eleki, Pioneers of European Integration. Um, so why is it a laboratory? It's a sort of test case when you have, indeed, you can move. Uh, the question is, when and how are you going to keep the welfare state? Um, most of the jurisprudence, actually, in a, uh, Later, but indeed, there's been a lot of jurisprudence on, of, on recognition of diplomas, etc. But also on issues of pensions, wealth, you know, uh, transportable uh, benefits, etc., etc. So in fact, um, EU movers are a good example on the fact that we still have welfare states as containers, you know, sort of trying to keep close as much as possible. Um, and the main act, I know, and only top-down, um, I would say, mechanisms of opening them up. ECJ jurisprudence saying, no, health, etc. these are just services, it's negative integration, you have to remove barriers. 
if so much on Luxembourg wants to have the glasses on you know, Belgium, that is fine. So a lot of jurisprudence saying this basically what you know is making an equivalent between a benefit and a service, right? Uh, when so you can and this, you know, this was very, very controversial, but now this the jurisprudence is is, is quite important. After that, how it was in reality is what I think even Bell tries to show is it's one thing. For instance, getting into the German welfare state system for real when you come from the outside, this is you know, this is really where actually no lawyers and people scientists should venture, but you know, where our sociologists and anthropologists know that it's very difficult uh, to get in the system. Uh, um, and not just as a Turk in the 1960s or 70s, but still now as an EU citizen. So that's why it's an interesting case. It's, you know, you can't, you know, you, you cannot just blame it on, I say, social uh, and, and, and ethnic differences. So EU movers are having difficulties actually accessing even uh, in some cases, despite the fact that they have all the rights accessibility in realities, um, um, healthcare systems, uh, getting their pensions where they, sh you know, this idea of being a transnational citizen going from one place to another in Europe just does not work for pensions uh, and from other, for other for other benefits as well. Um, so I think even if you have the rights in some sense, and I don't know if some of you are lawyers out there, I know Stuart Triangle, Dubai last year, another person that I keep mentioning. But anyway, he was a great, great uh, American lawyer, and he wrote a book uh, about the myth of rights. You know, the idea that if we have the rights, you know, that's what we should be fighting for. Uh, and you know, it's a big question in the US, is we have the rights, but in reality, does it really change? Does it bring out social change? Uh, it's, a, it's another issue. But it is, you know, yes, you have the rights. Yeah, yeah special cues even. You don't have to. You don't have any try to hassle. But except for welfare state issues, where it becomes different. The other example I want to look from the U.S. I say is the other way around. Is looking at welfare uh, state workers. Carers, as they're called now, for working in welfare state systems. And um, that's a question in and of itself, of course, and I, and I know some of you, again, you know more than me in this room about this, but uh, it's, it's quite interesting what happens. So in 204, we have enlargement with 10 new countries. Eight of them have transition periods for access to employment, except in the UK, Sweden, etc. Um, but it's still, they become EU citizens. And what's interesting is, in fact, what you know, there's not one single reaction uh, on the part of employers uh, to this or on the part of employees. In Austria and Germany, someone taking care of an old person is still called a Polish. So, you know, it's a you know, if you talk, you say, oh, you know, my, they're my parents are getting old, uh, they, I'm afraid they're going to need the gas on, they don't get a Polish, right? So, so in fact, enlargement is not, you know, they were Polish before, and they are still uh, uh, definitely, you know, this, this hasn't changed. And Germany and Austria, by the way, are the ones who wanted the long, longest transition periods 
for uh, for for the eight countries uh, of Central and Eastern Europe. <laughs> Except, you know, when it came to caring about their at home, I'm talking about adult care, as well as institutional care, you have a lot of Polish workers. Um, so in fact, you can say, well, there's no effect of enlargement in the sense that they kept them. Uh, why should there have been an effect of enlargement? Two reasons. The Poles should have left and gone to places where they were better paid. But well, Germany is not maybe so bad. That's me. But they should have been, and I guess in the dual back theory, back to this dual market theory, they should have been this idea that once you have a status and you have more leverage with your employer, your employer is going to choose someone that they can exploit and pay less, longer hours, and you, you know, it's therefore you're going to be replaced by some other nationality that you know, does not have this status of EU citizen. That didn't happen in, uh, in Germany and, and, and Austria. It did happen probably to a much larger extent uh, in the UK, you tell me. Um, and, uh, and, but in France, clearly there is, you know, there is, I think there is evidence that it's a bit more of a, in the work I've done so far on this topic, uh, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's not just about status anyway. Um, and it's more about a bit like in the construction business where you have a number of nationalities or a bit like in the restaurant business in the States that each nationality in some sense is as they're rolling the food chain from the lowest to the highest uh, uh, but there was, there, was, uh, there was no effect. What did happen with enlargement on the migrant side were those who were picking strawberries in, uh, you know, in Spain didn't go to the UK as nurses. I mean, the nurses, the Polish nurses picking strawberries stopped picking strawberries. Uh, so they were, there was some effect in care work in the sense of, of those that were prevented because they were non-citizens in some sense from, uh, from doing that work who, you know, who then finally higher into what they what they what they want. But uh, uh, the very idea that these overqualified Polish nurses would be picking strawberries in southern Spain sounds crazy and it lasted for a very short period of time. In between the racist attacks in Enervido in uh, against black workers and the beautiful EU schemes that bring in Moroccan women with children and married. Uh, through uh, something called mobility, EU mobility partnerships. But that was an aberration and, and not one took care of those, uh, this problem. So as I said, the EU, I think, has to be looked at if you're not a policy, you know, not to study policy, but to look at the effects. You know, what, what, what's the effect of enlargement? What's the effect of free movement rights? Uh, at the same time, and, and that's uh, the last part uh, of my talk, I'll be happy to hear, uh, is what about the EU as more, um, I would say, a, a looking glass of what could be happening at the national level and, and, uh, and also uh, in, to what extent they're actually going further uh, now or than, than some national courts. As I said, the, there's been a lot of evolution since the 1970s in many countries uh, 
to make the social rights of my of sorry of foreigners and and citizens almost alike. There are still gaps, obviously. Uh, in uh, there are still particular uh, welfare benefits, non-contributed welfare benefits. Uh, in particular, and certain categories that sort of fall in the. And that's how you get to a court like the European Court of Human Rights. It's, you fall in the, some kind of juridical hole, if you will. <laughs> There's no solution for you at the national level. Um, but so what's what what's happening? I'll talk first about the course and I'll talk about the UN discrimination law. What's interesting is uh, a lot of cases came to the European Court of Justice involving welfare benefits. And what's the work of a number of people, including myself, but I'm also thinking of the work of Lisa Conant, who's uh, very much interested in this issue. She's a professor in Denver in the States looking minutely at the jurisprudence, um, in the ECJ, you're still an all economicus. You still have to be a productive person, worker. Um, so you're not a human being. <laughs> or reason. You still have to somehow contribute. So if you're, you know, in the case that a lot of cases were lost uh, uh, because of that, it's slightly and slowly evolving, but on, not on the welfare rights issue, issue as uh, such. Although, you know, this, uh, there's some very strange things that I've talked about. But because for a long time cases were being lost at the European Court of Justice, then people said, well, let's go to the other court, the one in Strasbourg, the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and then what was interesting is third country nationals who had no chance, who had lost, you know, had no, uh, lost in, uh, in uh, Luxembourg and went to Strasbourg, starting to win cases on a very interesting combination. Article 14 bans discrimination in a number of places. It can only be used in conjunction with another article. It's not an absolute right thing. Article 3 against torture, human, that, that's absolute right. Article 14 is only if you've been discriminated and that violates another right in the convention. And what did they choose? Article 1, protocol 1, which is private property. So welfare benefits are private property. So they, they therefore, if this person has not been this benefits, they've been denied property, and if it's on the basis of uh, one of the grounds of Article 14, um, uh, then you know their rights under the Convention have been violated, and the states will be uh, condemned. That was a there was a French case uh, which uh, involved. Uh, uh, it's an interesting non-contributing benefit because it's been in the news and the whole news in France. Although a few people, it's called allocation adulte handicapé. It's for Handicapped adults, they are they they get a, a benefit, and this was denied to foreigners. Then it was denied. Then the French court said, no, you cannot deny it to EU citizens. And if you cannot deny it to EU citizens, well, I'm not sure we can deny it to such multinationals. But so Jacques Chirac, you may have heard of, was the mayor of Paris before he was president. Um, he wanted to deny that they also all sorts of benefits and. He lost in court each time. 
this gets to the European Court of Human Rights on a very special case. This, because this is a, a child that has been adopted by a French couple, but too late to become, a, in some sense, to add to old to, to become a French citizen. So it's a third country national, and it's handicapped. And his parents are fighting for him to get this benefit. And he wins in Strasbourg uh, by this strange, you know, Article 14, Article 1. So showing that, in some sense, social rights can be human rights and can be defended under the convention. It's quite innovative in terms of jurisprudence and it contrasts with the very much market dynamic, market making dynamics that we work in the ECJ. The ECJ is Exception to that, there is twofold. One is the evolution with the development of EU anti-discrimination law, which started in the, with the Amsterdam Treaty in 1997. Um, and the second, some, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm probably even not going to tell the story right, but some developments. Uh, in the field actually of EU citizenship that sometimes have, have consequences on, on welfare rights. So EU anti-discrimination law first. Um, I'm not going to retell the whole story. I've written articles about this, so I'll be happy to share them. Um, but it's for lawyers in particular, it's for them it was the first time actually there was so much advances in what they call a human rights agenda and what in England you would call a social inclusion agenda. So really, the t I, think, I don't think for the UK it's a human rights issue. Um, but in a way, the fact that only the UK and the Dutch basically have anti-discrimination law of any kind on the basis of their citizenship. And an article of the treaty ban, you know, says we should have measures banning direct and indirect discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, harassment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, manages to follow up with a directive in 2000, um, two directives, one is on the other grounds, uh, not on, on um, race and ethnicity, but on the other grounds it's religion, which is a huge, of course, contentious issue. Uh, all over Europe uh, is, is, is quite interesting. But what's interesting when it comes to discussing the welfare state is in the, in the Article 13 of the directives, what is covered so uh, in terms of fine, you know, the, what are the, in some sense, what is the scope, what is called the scope in legal terms of this directive includes a lot of crucial elements, education, training, up to all training, including therefore university, professional training, etc. which in my efficient welfare state counts because I have this martial and education organizations in there. Uh, housing, housing. There's no housing competence in the EU, but housing is now a competence because it's in Article 13 and it's in the directive. You cannot discriminate in housing. That's probably the hardest part as well. But just the fact that you include in the directive uh, an area which where normally there should be no EU competence is interesting. Uh, and of course, in access to in. Um, uh, there's also, we also ban discrimination in uh, access to uh, goods and services, and in services, back to this idea that actually some uh, um, 
welfare institutions are actually services, that also, of course, means hospitals, etc., etc. So, you know, covers actually basically most of the uh, uh, most of the welfare state institutions, including the ones that you know where the EU does not have much, should not have much to say about. Uh, so I think there was a lot of you know surprise, uh, and that's why we tried to study why it's not adopted, and, and the directive was uh, extremely wide-ranging. And so now we're more than ten years after, obviously it's 2011. What's clear is nothing much has happened in the area of actually uh, housing, extremely contentious, uh, or uh, Indian discrimination related to welfare state institutions. Most of the uh, national developments and local developments focus on discrimination in employment and in private employment. A bit in public employment, but mostly in private employment. So we know that most of this, you know, there's a lot of discrimination, and especially something called indirect discrimination in public laws, or in the public sector, or in public housing. But that's not where it's easier to say, no, instead we're going to look at discrimination in private employment and call it diversity and management and, you know, give money for diversity training and do plans for increasing the diversity of the workforce, blah, blah, blah. But not much in terms of equality enhancing in, uh, in this area. Still, and to conclude, I think what's, what's interesting with the EU is this article, you know, this article can have long, you know, it just gets, the time of the law is a longer time than the time of politics. Now, um, as if very much a potential protecting impact on um, on the social rights uh, of uh, all residents in the EU, legal or illegal. It doesn't cover discrimination on the basis of nationality, but discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity is not based on nationality, right? So it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with your status or your nationality. So it's still potentially far-ranging. Um, and the explanation I can go through into the questions is, is, is almost a fluke and has nothing much to do with, uh, uh, in some sense, you know, there was not a real realization of what can, uh, what could happen with it under this law. So to conclude, I think we have to uh, still do more work in this relationship between, at the national level, I will talk about the local level as well, but. Uh, that's another Pandora's box. Uh, um, on, but not at this macro level or theoretical level of saying, you know, I'm going to take varieties of capitalism, I'm going to take uh, the welfare state typologies, and you know, just that's probably not going to get us very far. Or I'm going to use national models of integration, or because. In fact, when you look at people's decisions, whether they're migrants or employers, you see that it's actually more toward nitty gritty. Uh, um, and yes, it has to do with policy, but uh, you know, when you look at fiscal incentives, a small difference in the percentage of reimbursement can make a difference whether you hire or not, you know, a housekeeper, 
stuff. So it's not a big model of African experience. But I think we still have to look at it. It's, a, it's I think, an important sector, uh, according to welfare state uh, uh, specialists. One last note on the UK. Um, I was invited to discuss the latest results of transatlantic trends on migration, which is a survey that's done by the German Marshall Funds on every question that has to do with social services in the UK. It's just not happy with migrants. So they're scared of them. They're, and this year it was another hike. So the reaction in the room was saying, well, but they don't have a welfare state in the UK. Well, they do have some social services, but they don't work very well. But still, uh, only the UK and the US have such negative, in the sense that the other countries are Germany, France, uh, and they're not scared that somehow migrants will over, um, overuse uh, or, or, or in some sense take away their social services, except in the UK and the US. And the trend, you know, it's, a four, it's been four years since the survey's been done now. So we only have four years, but for four years, clearly there's something going on in the UK. Uh, <laughs> which, which is beyond the you know, economic crisis, etc. But it's also the discourse I've heard when I was in London. I remember I called a place called Policy Network, uh, where you had um, migrants, you know, who had become citizens, uh, who had become municipal councillors, saying, "Get these Polish people out of my, you know, district, basically." Because now that they don't have a job and they're surprised, they're just using you know, our services and they should go away. Uh, so it's true that the UK is, at, the, at this particular juncture, almost a place where there's more welfare chauvinism than in North, Northern Europe, but probably for very different reasons. Um,